The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, September 10th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. What if there were a crisis? I mean, the Trump administration is itself a crisis, but Bob Woodward is worried about an outside the White House crisis. You look at the operation of uh, this White House and uh, you have to say, let's hope to God we don't have a crisis. It's a familiar refrain here on Meet the Press, Democratic pollster Cornell Belcher voiced similar concerns. God help us, Chuck, if we actually have a, a, a national crisis. Because that's Keystone Cops over there, right? And such dysfunction and a, a Congress that, that, that sits by and twiddles its thumbs. I, I'm actually fearful for our country that we have this level of dysfunction in the executive branch. Because if, if we do have a national, national crisis, how do we deal with it if, 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 that's, if that's over at the White House? But guys, and everyone else who says this all the time, we already had the crisis. We did. And it tells us a lot about the Trump presidency. The crisis was, I'm serious here, I'm not making a joke, what do you think I'm going to say? Which, if you don't know, I'm not blaming you, but that's part of the crisis. The crisis was Hurricane Maria, 1,427 dead in Puerto Rico. It's an extremely similar death toll to Hurricane Katrina's. And remember how we talked about Hurricane Katrina? By we, I mean talking head TV guys who aren't me. They were always talking about, will this be Obama's Katrina? Will that be Obama's Katrina? The the BP oil spill, is this Obama's Katrina? The Ferguson riots, those could be Obama's Katrina. Which tells you, Katrina was a crisis. And Maria was almost as deadly and destructive as Katrina. And still, we're casting about and asking, what if there is a crisis? So what does this mean? It means, to some disgusting extent, Trump has won. He at least kept his promise to the elements of his base who are driven by racial animosity that he's not going to bum them out with images of black or brown people who've been abandoned by their country. His flailing distraction techniques might not gain him anything, but at least they work to distract the rest of us from things that could be uncomfortable. Could Trump have saved more people had his intervention been something other than tossing rolls of brawny and feuding with the mayor of San Juan? Probably not a lot of people. But could Bush really have saved a lot of lives in the days afterwards? Bush was criticized for his distance, his indifference, and the inability to adequately address the aftermath. Sub out the word adequately and sub in the word at all, and you have Trump with Hurricane Maria. I'll acknowledge Puerto Rico being a U.S. territory, its people being U.S. citizens, but not U.S. voters. That does, in a practical sense, have an impact on the outrage. But mostly, it's the Trump effect, Trump's bearing, his strategy, his mishigas, whatever you want to call it. The question shouldn't be, what if we have a crisis? The question should be, what if we had a crisis and no one noticed? On the show today, I will spiel about Serena Williams and the argument in general about sexism and double standards. But first, we will unmask Anonymous. Well, okay, we won't. But until then, I'm happy for Will Salatin's John Huntsman theory to hold sway. But if we want to get all methodical with the process, let us call in the stylometrists. And we've got one up next. 
Anonymous. Who is it? Well, if we had the answer, we wouldn't start with the word anonymous. There are a couple methods for unmasking who anonymous might be. One method is to, I don't know, suspend the First Amendment. That seems to be what the president wants to do. Uh, Another method might be pulling fingernails out of people. But there is a more advanced method, a scientific method, and it's called stylometry. It is the statistical analysis of variations in literary style, maybe If you did a comparison of all sorts of writing with the op-ed, you could figure out who wrote it. Joining me now is an expert, a senior research scientist at the International Computer Science Institute, Sidia Afros. Hello. How are you, Dr. Afros? I'm doing well. How are you? Very, very good. Um, Is this among your expertise or are you actually a stylometry expert? I guess you can call me a stylometry expert. We have used stylometry to de-anonymize several people who want to be anonymous. For example, cyber criminals who uh, trade in uh, underground criminal forums. And we found that uh, even though they're trying to hide their identities by using uh, different email addresses, different IP addresses, and they're using Tor, we can identify them just by analyzing their writing style. But is a large percentage of your work helping anonymous people stay anonymous? Yes. Tell me how that works. So, Automated linguistic analysis, it looks for specific ways people write. It assumes that everyone has a specific style of writing. And by style of writing, I don't mean writing like uh, handwriting. I mean the linguistic choices that people make, like the word choices, the sentence structures, or flow of paragraphs. For example, in the uh, anonymous op-ed, you have noticed many one-sentence paragraphs. And that's a very distinctive way of writing. Mm-hmm. And we tell people... Uh, how their style might distinguish them from the rest of the crowd and then ask them to change that. Oh, I see. For example, if someone is using the word lodestar, we can tell them <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> this is something that people don't usually use, so <laughs> maybe use a different word. And that is used for people who are maybe dissidents in oppressive regimes, that they want to get writing out there, but they know Mm -hmm. that, for instance, the authorities might have access to the same programs you do, and so they they want tips on not to be tripped up by the authorities. Yeah. I I have heard it... mentioned or surmised that perhaps Lodestar, speaking of Lodestar, in the op-ed, that might have been put in there as sort of a red herring. In other words, it's so blatant and also so very associated with Mike Pence that the thinking is, oh, maybe this is the person being clever. What's the evidence that would support that? And do you think that it's likely that Lodestar was just there with an eye towards someone applying stylometry to this exercise? It's possible that someone used that word specifically to divert the eyes toward Mike Pence. We have several studies uh, to figure out what are the best ways to hide your writing style. And we found that um, when we ask people imitate a specific author, they're very good at hiding their writing style. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, we we did this study where we asked um, people in the mechanical, Amazon Mechanical Turk, we asked them, describe your morning as if you were Cormac McCarthy. And we found people were very good at following his writing style and they described their morning in a very dark way. And that fooled all of our machine learning methods. Yeah. 
<laughs> describe your morning if you're Shakespeare and everyone's getting yeah. chased by bears or describe yeah. your... <laughs> that works? That yeah. actually works? Yeah, th- that works surprisingly wow. well. Yeah. But from what I hear and you tell me, it's not so much the one word that everyone would yeah. look at as the unusual mm. word. It's the mm. non-unusual words and where you put a that or if you say a whom that are huge giveaways. Yes, yeah. Usually um, words like lodestar are very easy to mimic, but the words like prepositions or conjunctions or function words and or articles, this kind of words, we use them without thinking about them. So for stylometric analysis, these words are more indicative of your own style than words like lodestar. Okay, so I guess you're saying with conjunctions, Mm -hmm. someone might say yet a lot more than but. And so if you wanted to hide your writing style, maybe what you should do is give your paragraph a pass and for every time you wrote but, change it to yet or however. Yeah, yeah, it's totally possible, especially in high-stake cases like the anonymous op-ed. I can imagine people did something like that. We are assuming that this is just one person, but it could not be one person. Right. And in that case, telemetric analysis would be even harder. Well, the, and the other thing I've heard is, you know, whenever you go through an editing process, what is an editing process but a process of changing the words? And yeah. people notice that Times op-eds don't have a huge range of expression. I mean, yeah. they are written in the style of a Times op-ed, so that might get in the way of the uh, stylometry as well. Is that right? Yeah, yes, definitely, yeah. The, the sentences are much shorter. Mm-hmm. And they're they're written in a more op-ed style, like uh, it it was using more the word I way more than in in other cases. So yeah, that would definitely interfere with the stylometric analysis. Now I have also heard it said that it might be hard for a stylometric analysis to be applied because you have to have a baseline. You have to have yeah. a sufficient number of writings and who knows how many people can be considered a senior White House um, advisor. Let's say it's 100. Mm-hmm. Is there really a sufficient body of work other than the actual, you know, heads of the cabinet and maybe one or two top aides? Yeah, yeah, that's another uh, another thing because um, in statistical analysis, you, you look for a comparison that how many times this op-ed used the word and and how many times regular people use that same word mm-hmm. and for that you need a you need to compare a different body of works and even in this case uh, the op-ed is written in a specific style so if you have other things written by maybe the same author but they are written for a different purposes then it would be hard to analyze those two texts because they, they were written for different purposes. Right, right. So if this guy, if this guy or woman has a romance novel on the side, might yeah. not be that useful in cracking the code to who wrote Lo- the Lodestar op-ed. Yeah, yeah. Especially for people who who are public speakers, and they, even though they might have a lot of published work, their published work might be edited. So, right. so your baseline is already corrupted. And most of these people have speech writers. Right. So depending on who is writing your speeches, it, it might corrupt the style. So how good is the process? Let's say we, we've mm. documented all the limitations in this specific case. But let's say uh-huh. this op-ed is 90-something percent directly from the pen of one author without being changed too much by a second author or by an editor, right? And let's also uh-huh. say that I narrowed the uh, field of people it could be and gave you 10 op-eds of similar length that those people write. Do you think you'd be able to find which one out of 50 people it was, given that set of circumstances? If we have sufficient 
pros, then it's possible to find these people because 10 is a very small set. Okay. 10 or 100. Yeah. Like we can identify people among a thousand people with over 90% accuracy. So 100 or 10 is a very small set. 100 people to look at is, is, is child's work for you. You yeah. think you can yeah. definitely find it. And what about the yeah. number of pieces of writing that you would need to come up with a match? For automated writing style, you need at least 5,000 words mm -hmm. per author. That would give you very high confidence. If you don't have 5,000 words per author, then the confidence would be lower. Mm -hmm. And so this is one and, of the reasons that, say, Joe Klein was uh, nabbed as the yeah. author of Primary Colors, because he wrote and yeah. wrote and wrote and wrote. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there are other things uh, that you could uh, identify in the prose that are not directly related to the identity, but sort of their demographics. For example, whether it's a man or a woman, yeah. or how educated do you think they are, yeah. or where do you think they were raised, where they're raised in in the Midwest or in the South. Yeah, uh, I've, I saw WikiLeaks do an analysis and they suggested based on their findings that it was an older conservative white male. Well, thanks. That really <laughs> narrows it down among the Trump cabinet. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Sadia Afros is a research scientist at the International Computer Science Institute. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for calling me. We're thrilled to announce Slate Day, a live podcast experience produced in conjunction with the Texas Tribune Festival. Join us and the GIST's fellow politically-minded shows, Political Gap Fest, Trumpcast, Amicus, and El Gap Fest. Attendees will experience their favorite political podcasts live and will have unique opportunities to mingle with the hosts and fellow fans during our cocktail party and you'll also get to purchase exclusive merchandise at a Slate Day pop-up shop. Slate Day will take place at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas on Saturday, September 29th in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. It's an intimate venue with limited seating. Get your tickets today. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and info. And now the spiel. On Saturday, Serena Williams was losing to 20-year-old Japanese tennis player Naomi Osaka, and then she was losing it on the chair umpire, Carlos Ramos. There were three violations assessed against Williams. One was ticky-tack, that she accepted coaching, not allowed in tennis. She got a warning for that one. Then she smashed and broke a racket. That is an unambiguous penalty. But because of the warning, it was a penalty that cost her a point, as opposed to just, you know, going on her permanent record and being treated with a fine later on. And she was livid. So she let Ramos have it. After a time, Ramos assessed this penalty. Cancellation, verbal abuse, penalty, Mrs. Williams. Which, as a third strike, cost Williams any practical shot at winning the match and the championship. Though to be fair to Osaka, which circumstances weren't, Williams was unlikely to win in the face of Osaka's serve and her own mental unraveling in that moment. 
But would a man have been assessed that penalty for verbal abuse? The umpire, Ramos, is a rigid enforcer of the rules. He doesn't have a hair trigger temper, but he ain't the job of tennis officials meaning adults who wear blazers and sit in high chairs. Some experts, like former pros Lindsey Davenport and James Blake on the Tennis Channel, said the ump could have done something to defuse the situation. Yes, he could have. But by rule and right, he didn't have to. I think between Williams and Ramos, to point the finger at the latter as being the one for not displaying sufficient equanimity is a bit of a stretch. But, you know, players' emotions do run high. And I want to see great championships play with passion. I don't want to see fussy umpires enforce with callousness. I get that complaint. And maybe it was sexist. I'm not dismissing that. There are videos of that very umpire, Ramos, in past tournaments being treated by great champion Novak Djokovic abusively, being treated by the great champion Rafa Nadal abusively, being treated by the great abuser Nick Kyrgios abusively and not penalizing them as much as he could have. But in all those instances, these players grew livid because Ramos did find them in guilty of a code violation that they thought was bullshit. And also let us note that Serena Williams herself could have very easily been on that list of players who thought themselves unfairly subject to selective Carlos Ramos enforcement, but not been given a game penalty because she could have stopped. She could have stopped 20 seconds in. She could have stopped 40 seconds in. She upbraided him directly after the racket smashing penalty. And then she continued on during the changeover. You will never, ever, ever be on another court of mine as long as you live. Then she paused to drink some water. She even called him a liar without him giving the penalty. But finally, after the fourth, fifth, or sixth flurry of invective from Williams, he gave her the code violation. Now, the debate over Serena Williams' treatment and the treatment at the hands of the officials at the U.S. Open is a good one. That's what I mean. It's a good debate. This is the angle I want to address. Josh Levine of Slate, listen to all the hang up and listen today. He makes good points regarding Williams' culpability. Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post argues, quote, all Ramos had to do was to continue to sit coolly above it all. And Williams could have channeled herself back into the match. And that would have been better for tennis. I agree. I enjoyed seeing all the great tennis journalists talk and discuss and debate this issue and debate sexism and, in doing so, debate society. There was Mary Carrillo, great tennis journalist, debating with Deadspin editor Megan Greenwall on Stephanie Rule's MSNBC show. This is in a larger context, right? Serena Williams has faced racism and sexism her entire career. Does that make her more likely to see it this in a, any given this situation? That's not what this was. She no, was it absolutely totally is it the chair umpire's job to think of that player in the broader context of their career, or are they supposed to call him as they see him at that moment? He calls him as he sees him. So I'm saying this guy is a very, very respected chair umpire, Stephanie. He has been doing it for decades. I thought Mary Carrillo got the better part of that argument, by the way, but I was edified for having heard it. But the reason why this is a good argument is that people were actually engaging in the argument on mostly factual terms and trying to use interpretation of the fact as the fulcrum of persuasion. That's the way a good argument should go. 
It's not the way an argument usually goes. In fact, I was thinking of spieling about a couple examples of sexism and double standards, or at least purported examples of double standards that I came across in the last few days. Now, I'm going to talk about them now, and you might be saying, Mike, get back to Serena. Why are you talking about these things? Because the interesting thing to me, or the angle that I think I could bring to it, is to talk about, in general, allegations of double standards and how they play out. So, I was reading in Vox the other day, Laura McGann arguing, here's the headline, critics say Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can't hang with the intellectual heavyweights in Congress. Male politicians aren't told to put training wheels back on after a fact check. I disagree. I think male politicians, all politicians, are frequently admonished for stupidity. It was striking that the go-to example that McGahn cited was Bernie Sanders. McGahn wrote, in a town where male politicians are allowed to get policy facts wrong without losing credibility, Ocasio-Cortez's mistakes are held up as evidence that she's not up to the task. But Bernie Sanders? The in my opinion, fairly warranted critique of him was that he wasn't up to the task when it came to command of the facts. When he was pressed on how to break up the banks, he couldn't give a good answer to the Daily News editorial board. And at that moment, he was roundly denounced as being a sloganeer instead of a policy expert. This was in contrast to Hillary Clinton, the wonkish policy expert. So there's a case where the woman wasn't critiqued for lack of knowledge and knowing the details, but the man was. The idea that Ocasio-Cortez is being held to a double standard over knowledge, to me does not hold water. And so what, right? So what? That article didn't catch fire. The idea, I wouldn't say, is really in the ether. It's just one accusation of a double standard that I don't think gets there. I don't think makes its case. So what? So what happens to it? Well, I think what happens is that it takes hold among a receptive audience and it doesn't receive any rebuttals. I was thinking about the implications of all of this because after I read the Ocasio-Cortez is subject to a double standard article, I came across this article in BuzzFeed by Sacha. Cool. Louis C.K., Aziz Ansari, and sexist double standards. Here's the nub of the article. The return of both comedians highlights an unambiguous double standard between the way we reprimand women comics like Kathy Griffin and Samantha Bee for their fuck-ups and the way we reprimand their male counterparts even when their misconduct has been more severe. The argument was all over the place in my opinion. First of all, I don't even think Samantha Bee had a misdeed, but I understand because of forces of the marketplace, she had to apologize for calling Ivanka Trump a feckless cunt. And then there's the claim of the severity of Aziz Ansari's misdeed, said to be more severe than Kathy Griffin's when she posed with uh, the, the head depicted to be the head of Donald Trump. Ansari was accused of engaging in some sexual actions on a date that the date later said were unwarranted. And there it ends. It's just an accusation. Who knows what it all means? Louis C.K., the male comic, he's said to be skating away from penalties. But in fact, his show was immediately canceled by his network. His name was stripped uh, as producer from other shows. Whereas Samantha B., the female comic, said to be punished more severely than Louis C.K., she never lost her show. She was on the very next scheduled edition of Full Frontal with Samantha B. She hasn't missed a show since. Samantha B's punishment is described this way. Three months since B made this joke, she's still giving interviews about it. Emphasis was the author's, italicized. But then Kathy Griffin's punishment is described this way. 
She's on track to make a few million dollars on her 27-date Laugh Your Head Off world tour, still marred by a lack of publicity on network television and any significant mainstream media coverage. So a punishment can be either that you have to do interviews or that you're not doing enough interviews. Both are a punishment. By the way, I saw her on Bill Maher. And let's note that the male comedians have literally done a couple sets in small clubs or small theaters. They're the beneficiaries of the double standard where the sufferer of sexism is doing a $27 million generating tour. Okay, those are just the specifics of that article. But the main problem here is what makes the idea of the double standard hard to prove. It is hard to isolate the independent variable. Is it sexism at play? Or is it that we're comparing vastly disparate situations? To show sexism or a double standard, you would have to look at two men guilty of perceived communication transgressions against the Trump administration or two women comics who are guilty of being creepy sexually. So it's not an apt comparison. But my main point has nothing to do with the merits of this argument or the Ocasio-Cortez argument. It's the nature of these types of arguments that allege double standards. I think 30 years ago, they wouldn't be published. Now, is that good or bad? Well, in a way, it's bad. It limits discourse. More voices are getting out there. Woo! In another way, it's okay, because maybe the gatekeepers were doing their job. Like I said, I don't think these arguments are strong at all. But let's acknowledge who the gatekeepers were back then, overwhelmingly male. So maybe those gatekeepers wouldn't be able to see real double standards if they were presented with them. Then you get to the standard of what do weak arguments, whose only real audience is the like-minded, what role do they play? Is there harm putting forth charges of double standards if those charges don't really make their case or if those charges only appeal to the already converted? You could say it's like crying wolf. If you do it too often, the public will turn away from true examples of sexism. I think it would be rhetorically helpful to me if I were to say, yeah, that's what's going on. But I honestly don't think that's what's going on. I suspect there is some sort of deleterious effects of arguments that land with the like-minded but are never challenged, but I can't quite put my finger on them. I do think that the Serena Williams debate, the good debate, does give me some hope. We are all, well, maybe not all of us, but many of us, those with the best of intentions, are engaged on this issue as we should be, and we're actually gradually molding our conclusions based on evidence. And I also think it's one of those rare areas where, ready for this one? Reasonable people could disagree. Oh, I know, it's America. Give it a few days and to be on the wrong side of the Serena Williams issue will be seen as a severe character flaw that you could just never return from. But until then, let's remember the real victim, Naomi Osaka's lawyer who handles endorsement deals. And that's it for today's show. Just producers Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader were disappointed I didn't give more prominence to the Stephanopoulos Papadopoulos confab of consequence. Slate podcast executive producer Steve Lichtai wanted Stephanopoulos to ask Mr. Papadopoulos if he'd be monogamous with Mrs. Papadopoulos because that's not a word synonymous with a certain monopolist given to opulence. The gist to think that Papadopoulos, a man of inconsequence, would be the one to topple us or to fit the republic for a sarcophagus. It just sticks in my esophagus. Then again, I am the dweller of a big metropolis, not the heartland of, say, Indianapolis. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.